We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Welcome to the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. Hello, welcome to the Arsenal Vision post-match podcast. This is Mean Lean from ArsenalVision.co.uk. In today's show, Elliot, Tim and Paul will be talking about the 2-0 loss at home to Southampton in the EFL Cup. I had somewhat of a bad feeling about the game before it kicked off. We were bound to make a lot of changes and um, to be fair, I didn't expect Southampton to make so many changes either. But um, their changes didn't impact their game as much as they did ours, clearly. And it, it was a night to forget, you could you could say. Uh, but there's bigger fish to fry. As long as we go ahead and fry those fish, I'm sure everyone can put this one behind us. But um, yeah, it, it, it wasn't a fun night, to be fair. Is that is that fair? I'd say fair. It wasn't a fun night overall. But anyway, it's a great discussion. Enjoy the podcast. Back after our trip to West Ham. Going to be a tough game. Yeah, see you then. Mr. Bellerin's agent, Carl Jenkinson, earns him an additional $10,000 per week to his new contract with performance in midweek. This is the Arsenal Vision Post-Match Podcast. My name is Elliot Smith, and you can block me on Twitter, Yankee Gunner. I am joined as ever, except when I'm not by Paul. You can find him on Twitter at Pause My Pants. Hello, Paz. I'm a blogger again. Hello. Blogger and podcaster, Pause in My Pants. You can find him on Twitter at Pause My Pants. And blogger, podcaster, and all-around uh, great Arsenal supporter, uh, Tim Stillman. You can find him on Twitter at Stilberto. Hello, Tim. Hello there. Plenty to complain about, and we will get to it uh, post-haste. But first, uh, unfortunately, we have to talk about something that we'd rather not, which is the uh, Chapaquense air crash disaster and uh, really a tragic thing to 
be discussing, especially because this is a football club that probably should have gotten attention for being one of the great stories in world football and now, unfortunately, is getting attention for being uh, one of the greatest tragedies in world football. Um, uh, Gabrielle had a great video, a touching video tribute to the uh, players and, and club members who lost their lives in the plane on Arsenal's Twitter account. I strongly recommend you view it if you haven't already. And uh, for those of you who don't know, Tim is a big supporter of Brazilian football. He is married uh, to a Brazilian woman. And as such, Tim, I thought we could just start the show with maybe you mm. giving us your thoughts of how you've experienced this um, and uh, what uh, what maybe your wife is going through and just sort of your feelings about what's happened. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's I started following the events kind of very, very early on Tuesday morning, about half past five. And obviously on social media, I follow a lot of Brazilian um, news accounts, not just football accounts, you know, and obviously this is uh, this is a story that goes way, way beyond football. So this was all breaking and I was following developments all of Tuesday morning and obviously we don't really need to rake over how it all unfolded. But um, I've watched a lot of this team in the last three years and I think everyone will probably know by now that you know, they're, they're a real kind of success story. They were in Serie D um, seven years ago. They had successive promotions and they've really consolidated well. They finished 15th, 14th, and this year they're, they're currently ninth in the table uh, with a game to go. So, And uh, what's important to point out is they didn't do this with money. This wasn't down to investment. They had, um, by the standards of football, uh, Brazilian football, this crazy idea of just running their club quite well. Um, and, you know, having a good youth academy and buying sensibly and having a semblance of stability, which a lot of Brazilian, much bigger and much more storied and much richer Brazilian clubs could really, really learn from. You could say and the I same about clubs the world over. <laughs> the world over. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think one of the things that was kind of going through my mind is obviously, you know, the football world, as it were, has, has really reacted. And you start to think to yourself, and obviously, somehow it touches you more um, because it's a football team. And for me, this is a football team that was playing my Brazilian football team on Sunday. So I was literally due to watch them on, on Sunday in their final game of the season, in their greatest ever season. And, and this happens and you start to think to yourself, well, you know, do, does it really matter that they were a football team? Does it even matter that they were, you know, a, a club on the rise and that they were, you know, is, is any of that context actually relevant in, in the face of the human story of these young men um, with families and hopes and dreams and the rest of it who've all lost their lives? And actually, I think what the last 48 hours has told me is if it does, it probably doesn't matter, but the way in which the, the kind of the real small shaft of light here is... Um, the way the football world has come together um, and the outpouring of, of, of sympathy and compassion and clubs in Brazil are just rallying around this, offering them players free of charge. Um, Brazilian clubs at the moment are kicking around the idea of, well, they want the CBF, the Brazilian FA, to safeguard them from relegation for three years while they, they get back on their feet. Um, my club, uh, Atletico Mineiro, you know, they, they're meant to be playing them on Sunday and they've steadfastly said, we're not playing this game. Um, the CBF, because they're fucking idiots, <laughs> are kind of saying, grandstanding and saying, well, legally you have to play. And, and Atletico are saying, we don't care about the punishment. We, 
you know, we don't want the points, we forfeit the game um, and we'll take any punishment you give us. And that punishment could include relegation, actually, um, if you don't fulfil a fixture. And th there's a great deal of solidarity, and not just from the clubs, but from the fans all over the world. And, and actually, that makes you think that, all right, in context, no, in the face of the tragic loss of human life, it doesn't really matter that they were footballers. Um, but what what it shows you is that um, this kind of teaches us that fo as football fans that there's a great deal that binds us together. And I know a great many people hadn't even heard of Chapecoense before this and yet are, are hugely touched by this because we all recognise... Um, and, you know, this sounds like a slightly selfish thing to say, but, you know, they're, but for the grace of God, go I kind of thing. What if that happened to my team? What if that happened to any team? There's there's a full list. There's a full round of Champions League games. Um, in, not not in to be macabre about it, but what if it happened to you? I mean, right? I mean, it's indeed. not, it's well, not just a footballing tragedy. It, it, is exactly. a, it is a human tragedy, as you've said. Exactly. And it's, and, isn't it also the tragedy of a town? Uh, I mean, I yeah. don't know anything about about the club, honestly, or the town, but I would guess this is probably the be-all and end-all for a huge Easy. section of this town. Be, you know, wh why is it more than just the players? Because, you know, a football team in a town like that is the town in some ways. Indeed, and that's that's what it shows you, that actually, that, you know, the, the, the football world can kind of come together and we, we can see through this kind of tragic perspective that there's a great deal that binds us and that, um, that we have in common with, with one another and that actually football clubs are, like, you, like you've just kind of said, are really rooted in the community and especially a football club like this that comes from a fairly small town that is not a, a, a footballing hotbed in Brazil by any means. And all of these people come together around these 11 players every week and we all recognize that in a time like this and and that's really the only kind of ever so slight not even a positive but you know like chink of light there is that um it is a great thing to be part of this global community as football fans and people who've never even heard of this club are, are deeply touched by this um and offering you know support donations things like that clubs offering players and and it it, it just shows you that um, you know, football, it, it kind of restores your faith a little bit, I suppose, in, in football and indeed the world, really, because the world feels like a, a dark and scary place at the moment. And, and you know, this this kind of tragedy happening in that context, but it does show you that there's, there's a great deal of humanity out there. And if football can bring and one of the things football is good at is mobilising that and bringing it all together. Yeah. Every now and then, there's a, a tragedy that's so utterly crap that people can get their heads around pulling them out of your a their asses and, and yeah. seeing what the right thing to do is. Yeah, I mean, exactly. if, if we could only be as good to each other all the time as we are often through tragedy, the world would be a very different place indeed. And not to uh, belabor the point, but I think one of the things that struck me about this, Tim, and you can correct me if I'm wrong... Um, you know, these are, this isn't a Champions League club. This isn't Arsenal. These aren't pampered millionaires. And not mm. that the loss of a rich life is in any way uh, any less valuable than the loss of a middle-class life or an impoverished life. The, the point is that I would imagine for some of the families that are left behind, the loss of this earning potential could have a, a knock-on effect to their ability to support themselves, to raise their children, to, to pay and feed their families. 
um, which very would not so. be the case in another situation. So we certainly hope that the very short attention span that the mm. world and the internet and social media has for a tragedy doesn't cause this to fall off the radar because I think there are families, and as, as Paul rightly said, a town that economically can be left behind and not just the emotional devastation, but the, the loss of the ability to support for whole families mm. to support themselves. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, we, we certainly, you know, uh, hope that everybody can can contribute in whatever way is possible, and, and we'll just continue to follow the story and, and hope for the best and that, you know, some good can come from the tragedy, uh, not the least of which is just people binding together and, and reaching out to help one another. So we'll move on because there's plenty of Arsenal stuff to complain about and get back to our little tribal uh, petty existences. But uh, Tim and Paul, I appreciate your, your thoughts on that matter. So with that having said, let's start moaning a bit. Arsenal crashed out of the uh, brandless cup uh, in midweek, a cup so trivial and meaningless that it has no sponsorship. So I'm not sure how we could possibly care about it. I have to admit that I don't care too much about the result, but I think there are performances that certainly have to be evaluated. And Paul, I will start with you and give you the, uh, a multiple choice question here. Carl Jenkinson, bad right back or the worst right back? Uh, poor Carl. I mean, look, yeah. let's be honest, just real yeah. quick. You hate sticking the boot into Carl because he's a nice lad and he's an Arsenal supporter or whatever, but I can't Lovely help fella. but feel if this was Emmanuel Abue from the Ivory Coast or if this were a Gervinho who was hounded out of the club for reasons I've still never totally understood, you know, it might be treated a little differently. Is is Carl Jenkinson treated with kit gloves because of liking him as a person as opposed to as a player? Well, maybe, I, I mean... To your point, maybe culturally people understand Carl Jenkinson, if you know what I mean. I get you. Uh, yeah. Gervinho was always a bit of a, you, you know, it, it, just so different to the rest of us, probably to the rest of everybody. You can on the just planet. say forehead, it's fine. We get it. We know what you're talking about. Foreign. Foreign. Forehead. No. Foreign. Foreign head. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, there's probably a bit of that, but uh, I don't think it's too mysterious. He's a nice guy. It'd be a great story, but I don't think anybody, I guess some people are, are kidding themselves. I mean, the, the main issue is it would be lovely if he had a future as a squad player, but based on ha how we last saw him before he left us and his performances since he came back, it doesn't seem like one of those things is getting better. You this, know, this, kinda, ends, this ends yeah. his, his Arsenal career right i mean we're not going to see him at right back again well never say never with arson uh, i mean it did i did kind of guess he might he, he said something similar to what i expect that you know we'd we'd see carl jenkinson basically get another shot at him we'd see a different carl jenkinson gulp <laughs> um but you know I, circumstances can come where but i expect uh, you know my bet is gabrielle next time out um, and until uh, Hector comes back, uh, my my sneaky little crush would I'd love to see Ainsley Maitland Niles come through and and perform. But it might uh, I think Wenger wouldn't risk that kind of pressure on a young guy with a lot of talent, so uh, a lot of potential for the future. Doesn't want to make this his problem. So I think we'll we'll ride it out with Gabrielle. I know okay. there's a few other scenarios, and I think Carl, God love him, might be toast. 
Yeah, yeah, and I mean, look, it, it is it is a level too far for him, and and you you know you can say the cliche that you feel bad for him. Um, but let's not forget he is probably a fairly, I have to admit, I don't know the details of his contract, but I'm sure he's a reasonably well-compensated guy who's very talented at football and will play professional football somewhere, just not as talented as you need to be to be playing at this level. Tim, I... Yeah, in fact, he, can I just say, yeah, he yeah, probably please. knew before we did that he was shit and has been banking all this money from day one. Yeah, well, we can only hope. Um, <laughs> maybe he was an early, an early investor in Flamini's company. You know, so he'll be fine. <laughs> Tim, I don't um, I don't want to stick the boot in, like I said, to, to Carl Jenkinson too much. I don't think this one requires a lot of analysis. Uh, and from reading your tweets, I think you sort of agree that he's probably a goner and not an option going mm. forward. But what I will say, and tell me if you disagree with this, I thought of the center back pairing we saw against Southampton, Rob Holding looked assured and competent and Gabrielle looked a little ropey and uh, not particularly confidence-inspiring are you still comfortable with him being the option now that Carl looks to have abdicated the right back berth? Um, I, I, comfortable is probably not the right word because it's not ideal. I, I, I thought Gabriel had had a half decent game, um, to be honest. But um, yeah, me too. It's 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 not ideal, but I think it might be the the best of what we've got. Quite frankly, it did seem like end of days stuff for Carl really and I was a little surprised he wasn't taken off at half time but it had a I hint of the Abue substitute appearance about it didn't it? it it did yeah and you know Wenger's been a little bit um you know in public before the United game he was talking about other options before PSG he said oh I was tempted to bring Debushi back but it's too early and then he did bring Debushi back too early so He's been waiting to take him out of this team, and he's obviously not comfortable with him. And I really don't think last night would have done anything other than just firmed up in his own mind that Jenkinson's not quite up to scratch. I mean, it um, sounds like Bellerin's getting. I mean, we we hate to say ahead of schedule with injury recovery at Arsenal, but this may not be as long a term a problem as possible. So, is it make do with Gabrielle and just cross our fingers that Bellerin then comes back and plays the rest of the season? I think so. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I, I thought I always thought he'd pick Jenkinson at Old Trafford because I always had in my mind if this was a one or two game injury for Bellerin, he might settle on another option like I don't know Coquelin or 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 Gabriel or something like that or or even Rob Holding who I believe has played there before. Um, but because it was a a four to five week thing, I thought. Yeah, he's he's not going to want to do that for that long, and he might just give Carl the nod and see if he can. He said something before this game about Jenkinson needs a few games to get into uh, get into the flow of things, which I think certainly has been true in his career. But I I think that he was just he was just trying to spare him some public criticism, really, when he said that. So, yeah, I, I mean, I think really you're looking at. You know, getting through the West Ham game against Basel, hopefully we will be putting out a shadow team anyway and won't really have to worry about it. Um, and then, you know, you're looking at Stoke at home. And, and if, if we can get Bellerin back in, in fairly decent time after that, then, you know, we, we might just survive it. But um, effectively without... And this is going to happen in those fallback positions because it's a bit unreasonable to to expect that you're going to have three really good fallback options. Um, so yeah, I, I think he'll play Gabriel there on um, on Saturday. Now Gabriel's got two games under his belt. 
one at right back and one at centre half. Um, and I think he'll just he'll just try and ride it out that way. And we we know how it affected Arsenal's fluency a few seasons ago when we had the great fullback shortage of 2011, and we ended all, up with... all the fullbacks and everybody who ever put up their hand yeah. to replace them got injured. I think we went seven deep. It was like Giroud was playing right back. I remember Koscielny playing right back for a game at Norwich as well, and um, mm. you know it. Uh, the, the fullbacks are, I mean, in modern football, they're so important. And to Arsenal, they're especially important. And they're really the only that, source of width for us. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You can see that we're not quite the same without Bellerin. I mean, I mean, I just wonder, I know it sounds crazy, but I do wonder if he'll try a more attacking-minded player in instead of a, a less mobile, less pacey, attacking-minded player in a center back I mean will he try Francis Coughlin will he try Alex Oxlade Chamberlain I mean I think you could argue that the defensive side of what our fullbacks do is not necessarily as important as the attacking side of what our fullbacks do and even more so I think on that right wing because Nacho hasn't been the one overlapping as much it's been much more Hector Bellerin and I think that's been a big part of Theo's resurgence and so I think you you stifle the way our attack has been building more when you take out the pace and overlapping qualities of our right fullback than our left fullback. So it will be interesting to see how he tries to repair that because while Gabriel may give us some of the defensive solidity, I mean, I personally don't think so, but he might, um, <laughs> I, I don't think he gives us really any of that attacking flair, obviously. So let's do this. I mean, we have turned this into the, the Francis Coughlin Vision podcast, and we have to talk about Coughlin and Elneny and Santi and what's going on there. I want to push it back just a little bit um, in the podcast to the part of the, sh the show that people don't listen to so that we can get to some of the stuff that we don't talk about as much. Um, you know, we can talk about the goals we conceded in this game, but really what was disappointing was how little we created to me um, mm. because I think – there have been problems with our attack lately, and, and it has looked a little bit muddled. Um, I know it's hard to evaluate when you don't have Alexis, when you don't have Ozil. Um, but Aaron Ramsey got to play that Mesut Ozil role, that free role right behind the front line, the area he thinks he should be playing, given the kind of freedom that he has with Wales where he excels. And I think it's fair to say, Paul, that it was a mediocre to awful performance from Aaron Ramsey. This is a player with a tremendous reputation, not certainly sure that that reputation is warranted, but he certainly rates himself among the best in the game. And I don't think we can be evaluating him or judging him based on the standards of a mediocre squad player. What did you make of this performance? Okay. Um, I agree with all of that. Uh, let me uh, present the case for maybe some kind of defense here. Um, you know you don't have yeah, to do that. <laughs> I know, I know, but this is kind of the straw we're all grasping at for our season. Fair you know, if, yeah, fair enough. You know, if Chaka Ramsey doesn't work, well, he to be fair, might... he wasn't deployed in that role. I mean, right? He was he was in the no, Ozil no. role, which he's not going to play going forward. Granted, yeah. uh, and I will encompass that. But you know what I mean? If, yes. If if we give up on Ramsey, I think we just gave up on the season. Well, cause... with with Santi's injury, which we'll get to. But yeah, I mean. Now that Cazorla yeah. is probably done for the season and maybe done at Arsenal. So the case for the defence is, yes, he was nominally in the number 10 position, but because Coquelin Elneny was 
such a flat uh, option out of midfield. Ramsey was basically pulled in to make up a three a lot of when the game really counted, when it was in transitions, when it was when we were when they were contesting the game rather than when they were sitting back and we were knocking it around a harmless center circle, in which case being a number 10 didn't do him any more benefit than being a number eight. He just got to join the circle with the circle with everybody else. So I don't think it was really a showcase for playing the number 10 role because he didn't have behind it behind him or in front of him. You know, you mentioned width. Well, everything we did went through the center. So you had a Wobie running at the center, dribbling at three, four players. You had the Jeff, who um, one shouldn't knock young players, but he had a st- would, he had a stinker. Yeah, he, he certainly. You know, pick your favorite words. He didn't twelve me, um, but again, he had to. He certainly didn't push it down the byline. Uh, and bang it in for a cross. We had no uh, full backs, certainly on the right side, getting... F- so we had no width. Everything went through the centre. If you look at where our shots are from, our key passes are from, they're all cent- central. So Ramsey was never going to be able to burst through the lines and into the box to get on the end of a cross. There were no crosses. Um, and to me, to judge almost anybody in the game based on our setup. Uh, we had actually quite a strong lineup, obviously, in terms of if you want to take the the uh, the CVs, the resumes of the guys, you know, almost the whole team was basically Premier League-ish standard. But when you look at the front three, it will be on one side, Perez just back, and Jeff on the other side. It was... It, it, remember when I used to f- defend our... PSG midfield based on the front three and our performance against Liverpool, you know, to me, it's the same thing. If you don't have the kind of balance that opens up the field and holds onto the ball and prevents the, presents the opportunity for the team to move forward, it just kind of, all the pressure falls back. And I think Ramsey definitely suffered from that. I'd also say... My my counterpoint, just real quick, would be Ramsey plays in a Wales side that has one other player really of of the caliber he's supposed to be. He's given a free role. And his his performances for Wales are, I think, rightly praised for being um, the kind that raised the level of his teammates. So, I mean... it is possible that, for him fair. to play in, in a less talented team in that role and make an impact. Yeah, but probably not as the possession team. I mean, believe it or not, we That's had way point. more possession yep. than Southampton. Yeah. And secondly, he didn't have a free role yesterday. He was a very busy fellow. He was basically part of a midfield three because he was dropping back to help, you know, progress the ball forward. Or we were stuck outside their penalty area with, you know, with 10 players in a semicircle. So I, I don't... Yeah. Well, I, let, let, let me get Tim in here then, because I do, I do get your point, and I, I do understand that, especially for players that are supposed to build the attack, they get some kind of pass when the attack they're building to is not made up of your first choice options. But Tim, I mean, this is a and pl- the two mids behind them are not the not you know, not creating the right, not building the play yeah. to where he can get into that more advanced role. So. Look, I mean, I think one of the things that's problematic, though, is just from a technique standpoint, Tim, I mean, I can't remember when it happened exactly, but he made this burst through midfield at one point, starting in our own half. And, and you think, oh, here here comes Aaron Ramsey bursting through the midfield. Um, and and he takes this touch that, like, Matthew Flamini would be embarrassed of that, you know, goes 10 yards in front of him, and he's running like crazy to chase it down. The ball just goes back to Southampton. Like, this isn't a player who's 
you know, who's struggling to make Ozil level plays. He's struggling with basic technique at times. What do you see in Aaron Ramsey's play right now? Um, I, I think that was quite harsh. I, th I thought he was average. I thought he was mediocre. I thought, um, I think Paul's point is well made that with Coquelin and Elneny, there's not really anyone to give him the ball. Um, and I also think that Arsenal's possibly their biggest problem last night was that they just didn't have a striker. Um, Lucas Perez, it, it was, it must have just been too early for him because frankly, it was like playing with 10 men. And um, I, I think, you know, so Iwobi had a similar problem, um, but obviously he played much better than Ramsey did because he was still a lot more involved in his touches were more positive, but effectively Iwobi had the same problem in that he would run the ball to the edge of the area and then there'd just be nowhere to progress it to because Perez was surrounded and his movement wasn't fantastic and he just looked really out of sorts. So I think it's kind of a mixture of, and I, and I know, you know, lots of people say, oh, there's always excuses made for Aaron Ramsey and stuff like this. And it's just a bit like, I don't care if you're sick of hearing it. It doesn't mean it's not true. Again, the team wasn't really set up um, for him. I'm, I'm, I'm not convinced at all that he's a number 10. He plays as a number 10 for Wales, but number 10 for Wales is number eight for Arsenal because they sit back and they absorb play and then they counter. And his strength is running from deep, from deep positions, not from advanced positions. He doesn't play through balls or anything like that. He likes running onto things, and he does that best from the number eight position. I don't think he can be a number 10 for Arsenal because of the way we play and because of the way teams play against us. Because if you watch him play for Wales, he he stays in that midfield three alongside um, um, Andy King and whoever else it is that plays in Wales midfield. Joe um, Allen. Joe Allen. Joe Allen, that's it. And uh, he, he sits quite tightly with them until the counter-attack starts, and that's when he pops up in those advanced positions. And it's not to play through balls to to their striker. It's to get on the end of things. It's to get on the end of the things that Gareth Bale does. So I, I don't think he ever can or will be Arsenal's number 10. If he is, um, he almost certainly would need Olivier Giroud playing up front, someone to play off of. And he'd almost certainly need someone in the deeper area of midfield capable of building play. Um, now, you can look at that and say, well, does that make Ramsey a more limited player than he should be? Well, it makes, him, it makes him a Goldilocks but player I, is I what just, it does, right? I mean... I, I just honestly think if you... If for the last two years, Cazorla had been in that midfield and he'd been partnering Arteta, he'd been partnering Wilshere, he'd been partnering Elneny, you'd get the same thing. You wouldn't get the you wouldn't get the same level of performance from Cazorla that we've been seeing because they're not complementary partners and it keeps happening. And, you know, like I said, it doesn't matter if you're sick of hearing, if anyone's sick of hearing about it, it doesn't make it any less true. That said, like I said, I... I I don't want that to sound like an impassioned defence and that none of it was his fault. He was mediocre. He was totally mediocre. Like I said, Iwobi had the same problems he did and played a lot better, um, even given the kind of scant material. So, you know, Ramsey yeah, is not blameless in that by any means. But, um, you know, I, well, I don't well, really right, buy... Right, I'm not you... sure. Has he ever said he wants to play number 10? I'm not no, sure no, he said he wants to play in centre center midfield. I, I meant more yeah. just sort of in the centre of the pitch, not shun it out wide, and in a position that yeah. gives him a very free role that should feel sort of familiar <clears throat> to the Wales role. I mean, again, let's and not... And to, turn... to be fair, Elliot, to you, 
a lot of people use that phrase about their favorite position for Ramsey being the number 10 spot. And I think what they really mean is they want him to play for us like he does for Wales in the same way people used to say, I want Alexis Sanchez to play the same position he does for Chile. For Chile. Well, mm -hmm. he still doesn't do that. No, it's a different system. But I mean, we've seen, yeah. look, look, I, I, I get it, right? I'm not saying that this game yeah. was the perfect opportunity for Ramsey to shine. What I'm saying is, he was arguably, at least in theory, the most talented player in the Arsenal squad, put in the center of the pitch where he could move around, find the space to be most effective, and try to create opportunities for the team. And I think he struggled to do that. And my, my counterargument to both of the defenses, which I agree with, is that Putting, you know, not putting the players around him to succeed doesn't necessarily explain shooting from 30 yards with no opportunity to score when there's a promising attack on or going totally to sleep for their second goal and looking completely disinterested. I mean, Tim, isn't it at least fair to say, if you want to put technique and, and partnerships aside, that just from a, a mindset and um, just mental approach to the game perspective, Ramsey doesn't mm -hmm. seem to be on the same page with, with what's happening on the pitch. Yeah, yeah, I, th I think that's totally fair enough. I, I wrote something to that effect like a couple of weeks ago that really he's got to take a step towards the game. And I think there's this stat going out. I, d I don't know if it still holds true, but it certainly was after the Man U game that he, he hadn't shot on target from outside the box since January the 2nd um, or something like that. And... At one point last night, it was right towards the end, right in the last minute, he kind of shot wide. And a guy I go with, my mate, kind of he kind of grumbled. And I said, because he always grumbles when we shoot from long range. And I was just <laughs> like, but but there's there's nothing, there's nobody to pass to. We have to shoot from long range because we're playing without a striker. Yeah. And, uh, and But his counter was, but shoot accurately there. Well, yeah, <laughs> which, I mean... Which is a pretty fair point. <laughs> and I, ju I just think that there are certain moments where I look at him and I don't know that I see a player that is keyed into really being part of the collective. I think defensively yeah. he was suspect for their second goal. Just, you know, he Danielson did a little bit. I, I guess... So then let's... You're not wrong, Elliot, but can I just quickly say he's had two starts. You know, when Jack was coming back from injuries or whatever, he got seven or eight starts from Arson uh, in his his countdown. I mean, he's well, had two starts. I'm not giving starts. up on him. I mean, don't get me no, wrong. I'm not saying I'm, let's, I'm let's sell him in January. Been embedded into the team, finding his rhythm, finding his shots. I mean, two starts. So. Yeah, yeah. And he, was, he was brilliant against PSG as well. Um, okay, well, I, look, so then let's get to the issue then that's been raised by this. I'm sorry, everybody, but we're back to the Cockvision podcast, although this, this can be the, co the Cockneny podcast. Um, Paul, it didn't work. It, it wasn't fun to look at. Um, I, I will be fair to Cocklin, which you may think I'm not often fair to him. I thought Shaka coming on brought Cochran into the game in a better way and allowed Cochran to do the things he's better at. I thought Shaka was actually... You saw his difference with the very first pass he made, this sort of like curled yeah. line splitting pass up the, into the left half space. It was just brilliant by, you know, bypassed the Southampton midfield completely. And it's a pass we hadn't made to that point. Um, do you want to take a stab at the Cockney midfield while it was on the pitch and what we now need to do with Santi done for the season and, and, and that really seeming to have 
thrown a, a hand grenade into our midfield. Yeah, although we didn't have him and we knew we weren't getting him back for a while. But yeah, it's de it's kind of devastating. I feel like doing a ceremonial tiny little coffin on my desk and having a <clears throat> little ceremony it's here. Prob I mean, probably it's the end of him at Arsenal, right? I mean, we don't give him a new contract on the back of this. Tragically, maybe. So I do feel particularly gutted for that. Yeah, me too. Um, but... Our midfield. So I thought, uh, just to piss you off, I thought Cockland was actually kind of pretty decent a lot of the time, even with a nanny on the pitch individually. Our midfield didn't work. Um, he had a frighteningly large number of touches by comparison to any other game and passes, like it was up in the 90s, which is kind of... So he was trying. Um, I Here's what I would say... Chaka's doing himself absolutely no harm when he comes on the pitch these days. I mean, I thought we were night and day. Don't get away from, from the, the topic at hand, which is criticizing the players I told you to criticize. Let's not let's yeah. not let's not find someone to praise. <laughs> and I didn't. So they there were moments where they both kind of went to sleep. But uh, I have to say, I thought El Nenny more than Cockland was was asleep at the switch on the first goal. He's where just that, so that, conservative, too. I mean, it's yeah, he it's is. becoming he's painfully so obvious that, like, you know, as busy as he is and as great as his engine is and as much as he's willing to, you know, he, he can move the ball back and forth, but that's really yeah. the extent move, of it. Move. He's brilliant at finding pockets and been there to receive the pass and move the ball on. But if he ain't, the spark and the sizzle has to come from elsewhere. And Coquelin will provide that in certain circumstances, but he won't build from deep. So you basically have two players that aren't going to build from deep, which... And it, by the way, ways... it made Jenkinson yeah. look worse than he was, to be fair to Absolutely. Carl, because there were times when Jenkinson got the ball pinned against the right touchline and no one was coming back to give him an option in midfield. And, I mean, either had to punt it long or lose the ball, which he did on numerous occasions. Yeah, and the issues compound. I mean, not having wing uh, fullbacks, wingbacks, basically who helped build a play, not having maybe Mustafi in this game, uh, having those two players, not having an attack to pass up to, uh, you got yourself some some problems there. So going forward beyond this game, uh, you've got to What the fuck do we do? That, Is it Shaq or Ramsey yeah, you, now? you got to pray that when the alchemist shakes those two elements, they work together. I mean, we haven't really seen it, but if that doesn't work... Uh, what's our second best option? Uh, my guess would be it's Chaka Kakala, uh, with Chaka being the DLP, Kakala with hopefully in the near future people like Welbeck, but also today uh, Sanchez, uh, Walcott, etc., forming a pressing unit going forward with Bellerin on the wing, uh, Gibbs or Monreal on the wing to help push forward uh, and being an effective. Uh, agent on the pitch for many games because just a, a, a straightforward Coquelin Chaka combination where they're they're sit, both sitting back knocking the ball around doesn't look like a league winning pairing. Neither does El Neni, uh, Chaka Coquelin El Neni. No chance. We can't um, see that I, again in a league game, right? I mean, Coquelin El Neni. First of all, do we know what El Neni's status is? He was, uh, he was he was oh. ill, apparently. Oh, so right, that's right. Yeah. Tummy trouble. Right. Um, yeah. Well, all right, Tim, let me let me ask you. I mean, there, there's been some grumblings. I, I, I think it's overstated because, again, he's a player there was no way we could have counted on going into the season. But 
does the situation with Cazorla needing surgery and sort of the, the disappointment of seeing what a Coughlin Elneny midfield looks like, um, does this make the Jack loan feel a bit misguided now? Um, I wouldn't say so because um, the club were very well aware of Cazorla's Achilles issues and they were very well aware that something like this might happen, which is why, you know, a player that starts a load of our games hasn't been offered a contract that expires at the end of the season and, and that's why, effectively. And I think um, it's been a case of transitioning between Jacker and Cazorla. Um, we've obviously missed Cazorla since he's been out, but and, you know, because his skill set is so unique. But that doesn't mean that you need a midfielder that does exactly the same thing. Um, I think we definitely need a midfielder that, you know, does that, as Wenger said, moderate value pass from low to high midfield. So I'm, I'm happy personally with the idea of Jacker now taking over from Kazorda. I think that was probably always the intention. Um so the Jack, and to be honest with with the Jack loan, I don't think that was really the club's decision. I think that was his. Um, I've said it many times before. I think that's why it. I think it was personally it was a, a bad decision because I think he'd have got games, um, and this is this is kind of proving that. I think with uh, Coquelin and Elneny, I think I you know you can maybe if we're in the second leg of a Champions League time, we need a nil nil draw or something. You know, we we can entertain that, but well, what otherwise. was the scoreline when El Nenny went out? One nil. I mean, it's not. I, it's, I think so. Yeah. It's not like you know they were <laughs> keeping it tight at the back per se. No, no, but but for me, El, El Nenny, I I see him much more as I you know I'm I'm I'd be happier seeing him as the deepest midfielder. Um, basically, I, I don't really like the idea of him being the number eight, the in between, because he's not imaginative or penetrative enough I'm I'm happy in a lot of our games for him to be the deepest of the midfielders because you know he gets about the pitch and and he recycles the ball well I don't think he's fantastic off the ball but I think in probably a lot of our home games we could get away with just having someone there who's who's very diligent at recycling the ball um, otherwise if you play him in that number eight role I just don't see who he can partner really um other than jacker and you play them both as kind of sixes together i, I can see that working I, I quite like the jacker on any partnership but um you know I, I i didn't want jack to go um really and i don't think he should have um but i i think it was his decision uh, i i get the impression that he was very very forceful about it um and yeah, I always thought that he'd get plenty of games um, at Arsenal. Um, but you know, like I said on the last podcast, maybe that's you know Arsenal is my focus, but maybe it's not 100% his. He's thinking about his career, and that, that that's fair enough. Do we have the options we need in central midfield now to really sustain a title challenge? I mean, I would suspect that. And correct me if you disagree, but the manager is going to be forced almost now to try Shaka Ramsey, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think he should. I think all like it's just ripe for it. It's absolutely ripe for it. And you know, so we we've changed. Basically, this season we were going to have to do something different to win the league. I think playing Sanchez up front was a great start. Um, signing Mustafi was was a good step towards that. Having like a solid centre half duo again. 
Um, and and now it's so I, I feel like we've to to most intents and purposes kind of sorted the front line and the, and the back four, and we know what we're doing there. We've we've got to do something now with this with this central midfield, and it's got to be something like you say that's going to win us the league because we're capable of winning the league. But make no mistake, we're outsiders, um, and we're we're going to have to. We're not going to be able to like have like a calculated league win, if you know what I mean. We're not going to be able to do what you know United did for a couple of years and what Chelsea have what done Chelsea did the second half times. two seasons ago. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, like oh, let's let's go and try and you know draw some away games and win our home games and stuff. Like I think Arsenal are going to have to do something. Basically, Arsenal are going to have to go slightly above their ceiling to win the league not above their ceiling sorry but they're going to have to get closer to their ceiling to win the league than perhaps Manchester City or even Chelsea are but doesn't that make um, the I'm... argument then for really having to go for it because the best way yeah. to get above your ceiling is to try to you know win games Absolutely. and not draw them and that means playing a more aggressive setup like Ramsey and Shaka in midfield and really going for it Absolutely, and that's what we've done up front with Alexis we've we've gone for something there we tried something and we stuck with it and uh, I, I, yeah, I, that, that's exactly what I think. I think Jacko Ramsey is worth a go because we know we know what all the other combinations do, and they're all all right. And all right doesn't win you the league. And maybe Jacko and Ramsey will be a complete car crash, but we're not going to know till we see it. Yeah. Well, I mean, the. The game coming up at the weekend is is West Ham away, and Andy Carroll looks like he might be back. And if he starts, I think the really important thing for us is going to be denying uh, service into the box from wide positions because I don't care what you think of Koscielny and Mustafi. They're not going to win against Andy Carroll in the air. We cannot stop Andy Carroll in the air. The only way we can stop Andy Carroll is by denying service from good wide positions. Um, so it's going to be really interesting to see if the manager picks a side specifically engineered to do that, because if he is going to do that, I think you will definitely at a minimum see Francis Coughlin, uh, mm. who will be able to drop in and support the fullbacks a little bit more. Um, and then who the hell knows? I mean, will, will he pick him with Granite Shaka? I, I, you'd have to assume so. We'll see. Um, Paul, uh, unless you have a final say on midfield, we can move on from there. No, I think that's right. The only thing I'd say is we need a couple of pairings that work, don't we? work well if we're going to win the league because a you got the injuries but even if you don't you you need some options yep. we're not going to play two players for the rest of the season in the two major or three major competitions here so we actually need two that work well yeah um so come on chaco ramsey and then we need one more it was um it was a disappointing result we surprised sort of by the emirates response to him I mean, there was a lot of booing a lot of unhappiness you know, and I, I, you know, I took some heat on Twitter even from people who are saying, oh, you know, do we win so much stuff that we can be cavalier about the EFL Cup? It's not so much being cavalier about it. It's that you simply cannot go for every one of the four competitions you're in with the same energy and exuberance and team selection. You have to make some choices. And the prospects of having a two-legged tie against potentially Liverpool or United in the next round. I mean, who did, who did Southampton draw, as it turns out? Liverpool. Yeah, so, you know, two-legged tie against Liverpool, you know, a pressing team that really exhausts you um, at a time of your season when the Champions League is back and any league push that you want to make has to be on. Like, it's okay to make this a a distant fourth-choice trophy, right? Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, absolutely. And, you know, Southampton made those choices too, with the exception of Virgil van Dijk and, and the goalkeeper, Fraser Forster. And to be fair, those are two very, very big, important players um, for them. And that was a, a, they were a big part of the reason that we, we couldn't get near them. Um, but yeah, they made that choice as well. They're in the Europa League. They they played pretty much a second string side. So they made eight changes. Know, indeed, indeed. Which and you know we made ten. So uh, they they were in a similar position to us, and they were the away team as well. So you know, they, I, I'd say, and we have obviously a lot more resources. So you know, really, we should still be kind of winning that game. But they made the same choice, and you know, I don't. I think the manager said after the game... They picked a balanced team, didn't they, though? Well, yeah, yeah. And well, and they're, they're the manager... very good defensively. I mean, let's not let's not take away yeah. from Southampton as a, as a team. Like, they, we've had trouble with them, not just in this competition, but we've had trouble with them in the league, and they're very, very well organized. I mean, we didn't get a sniff of their goal. No, no, that's right. And, um, and I think the phrase Wenger used afterwards was, um, I don't regret the team selection, I regret the performance. Fair enough. Um, um, and, I, and I agree with Paul, it wasn't a balanced team. Um, that said, I can't think of too many other things I'd have done with it without, you know, bringing in players who I completely agree shouldn't, you know, shouldn't have been played like Alexis and Ozil um, because we don't really have a natural number 10. And Giroud wasn't available, which I think was a bit of a miss. I think we could have done with, at the very least, being able to bring him on when it was quite clear that Lucas was a bit of a passenger in the game. Well, well um, okay, go ahead, sorry. I, I also think that in the first half, having Rene Adelaide and Jenkinson on the same side was, was possibly a mistake because um, we had a kid and we had someone who just wasn't quite up to it. So it was, it was a very green right-hand side. And um, it's, it's no coincidence, certainly, that the second goal came down there as well. Yeah. Um, Paul, I, I think you would agree, right, that, that prioritizing other competitions, I mean, you can, just because you are not picking your first-choice team doesn't mean you don't care. And obviously you care, but it's the point that it, it is not possible to equally prioritize all the competitions we are in. And certainly it would have been silly to put out a first-team squad for this, right? Yeah, you, you've, he put out a strong selection on paper. It wasn't problem was it wasn't a balanced selection, but there, there was no shit. We only had, like, two kids on the field. So, uh, you know, for a, a League Cup uh, fixture, that's nowhere near the semifinal yet. And one of the things you look to, I mean, when are you going to introduce blood one or two of the younger, talented players, if not in a game like this? Uh, so uh, it wasn't like he put out a kids team or a young team. So you can't ding him for that. And it wasn't like he had a, any options up front besides the ones he picked from the senior team. I fully agree with Tim. Y you you load that with the Giro and Alexis and Ozil uh, at Theo, it's a mistake right now because they all need a bit of a breather. You know, Theo's had a kid but still played best part of two 90s recently. Well, let's put it this way. If if we had won 1-0 and gone through and played Alexis and Ozil and one of them had done their hamstring and was going to be out three weeks, people would be battering Arson for using them. 
we're still hearing about Ludogrets and Santi Cazorla. So yeah, exactly. Um, it, it's damned if you do, damned if you don't. And uh, I'm fully convinced that as soon as Wenger has picked his ele eleven, taking in our other priorities, he really wants to win those games. And in general, the team the teams do too. But they didn't get their shit together yesterday. I think partly for all the reasons we've outlined. Yeah. So, all right. I wanted to give you a chance to touch on Lucas. We've already heard uh, Tim really tear strips off him um, in, in, his tip, in his typical negative way. Support the team, Tim, for fuck's sake. Um, Paul, I mean, he's just back. He's had so little opportunity to integrate with the team. He has had better performances. But is there a little concern that with Welbeck return on the horizon and Alexis in phenomenal shape and and Giroud scoring every time he comes off the bench, that Lucas's pr first season at Arsenal could just kind of peter out? Um, horribly, yes. And, you know, he's at that age. He's, what is he, 29? So this is kind of, this is it for him. This is a really big season for him if he's to have a decent career at Arsenal. The only thing is, uh, this is his first outing back, and it was an outing too early. He's kind of been through this already in his young Arsenal career of coming back or, yeah, effectively coming back, playing the games, a start, a second start. I think by his third start for us, he looked pretty good and we were all gutted when he got injured. I don't know if it was his third, but just going off gut feel. Uh, by his third start, he looked pretty good. So uh, we could well need him um, and he could certainly well be an option on off the left wing or right wing. Um, so there's every chance that he might still have a decent season, but I, I do agree with you. It's, in, it's blowing in the wind right now in terms of whether he's going to be a somebody or a nobody at Arsenal. Uh, it's not like we don't need him. The question will be, by the time he gets his shit together, will, will that be the position we still need? But I suspect we're going to have requirements either up front or on the wing. Yeah, We're still in three competitions um, I mean, I kind of like the look of him. There are things yeah. I've seen about him that I like. It's just you say, well, all right, if Alexis is getting a rest, then Giroud probably comes in, which you know my opinion of that, that I don't think that's how we should do it, but it's probably what we would do. And if Welbeck's back, it would probably be Welbeck before it would be Lucas. And on the wings, I mean, maybe that's his path into the side, that if Theo needs to be rotated out or if Awobi needs to be rotated out and if Ramsey does become Shaka's partner in central midfield, the wide positions might become... Um, his way back in, although Oxlade-Chamberlain has been given a lot of chances with mixed results. I, I mean, Tim, just really quickly, you, you know, you were pretty clear on what you thought of the performance. Do you see a path to meaningful contribution for Lucas this season? Um, injuries. <laughs> when did they ever happen to us? Well, yeah, then he's I... screwed, I guess. Huh? <laughs> um, yeah, I, the thing is, for him, I, I think... Paul's um, point about his, his age is well made. He's got to, you know, when you're that age, you don't really have as much grace with the bedding season, you know. And also the other problem that he's got is that Welbeck is back in training, I think, next week. Um, and, you know, it will take him a little while to get back into the swing of things and we should be patient with him. But that means the clock is ticking, really, because, you know... Whether whether Arsene Menger sees it this way about, again, you know, I agree with you about Giroud that he should really only ever be on the bench. Um, 
And if you know, if even if Arsene sees it that way, which I'm, I'm not quite sure he does yet, um, you know, Welbeck is definitely ahead of Lucas Perez. And even if he does see it that you know we must have a mobile striker no matter what, um, Welbeck's still ahead of him in the queue. Um, I suspect that if he's looking for a route into the team, we've discussed before that our options on the left-hand side are not fantastic. Um, that. You know, we've got Iwobi, who's very promising, and I thought he was very good last night, comfortably our best player, probably alongside Rob Holding, but, um, you know, he can't do that every game at the moment. Chamberlain's very up and down, and the left isn't even natural for him anyway. Um, I had a conversation with someone on Twitter today, actually, who said something interesting, that with Alexis up front and kind of dropping back into midfield, that we can, we can actually have two quite attacking wingers, um, in terms of, you know, because obviously at the moment what happens is Alexis drops back in and Ozil tends to go up front. And uh, what someone was saying to me is actually if they both kind of stay around the number 10 role and we push our wingers up, we can have like almost like a Theo on the left kind of thing. Um, it might require Ozil to drop back a little bit further than he might like. But, but so whether, I don't know whether Lucas Perez can make that work, whether he can be an option on the left because none of our options for, for very differing reasons are totally convincing. So I, I, I think, think that's the room for him. Yeah, yeah ahead, I, I think so. I think so. Unless there's an injury crisis up front, I think that's his most realistic way in. Well, and, and I'll tell and you something. his route back, I mean, the bottom line on anybody's route back, we talked about Arsenal at the start of the season when things look really, really dark and dark and we said, is there really any way back for him to kind of rescue the season and the goodwill of the fans, etc. The The classic way is to start winning. And the classic way for Perez to get into this team, simple as it is, is how good is he? If he comes in and has a real impact from the left, Arson doesn't have a luxury this year. It's not like he's building a team for the future. He's building a team for this year. He needs results, not even this year. He needs results now. So whoever fires is in. Yeah, I got to tell you something. He's quick. He's strong. I like the way he moves. We've seen him deliver an assist from the left with really nice passing. We've seen him uh, chase down and harry a defender and take the ball off him and, and score a goal. Um, I think this is one of those situations where he's just been kind of unlucky. I think if he got a chance to play with Alexis and Walcott and Ozil and play in that left wing position, I think he could do a real job there. Now, again, I'm basing that off some very limited exposure to him. But given that Awobi's been a little bit uneven of late and did just play, uh, I mean, they both just played a full game um, in midweek. But I, I think that could be his route, his route in, especially because the other player you think who might get time there, Aaron Ramsey, may be drafted into central midfield to partner Shaka. So that would really say, who are yeah. our left wing options? And I, don't, I really don't see Ramsey on the left, to be honest. I think you're onto something on the left with Lucas, because the thing in his favor is that he's 29. He's going to be, he's either going to be foolish, he's going to pull a Debushi and have a bit of a meltdown, or he's going to be highly pragmatic and say, this is this is my shot. I need to be ultra useful on the left here. Forget what I think I want the style I want to play. What's the team need? And he's going to to me what he's going to do, he's all bustle and harry and fight and attitude and pressing, which we need anyway. And he'll go to the byline and get crosses in because nobody else is, because nobody else is. I I I definitely think there's a route in here. Um 
and having him well back and Theo as your primary options on both wings, you know, that'll get you a lot of games in the season. If he's good, there's definitely a route in here. And I think to Tim's point, you don't, you normally have that Betty in season. I'm not sure he will necessarily need one because he's 29, because he's pragmatic, because he's a fighter, because he's, you know, he's going to be fully committed or or he won't. This is where I think Arson's tendency to play favorites is problematic because I don't think Oxlade-Chamberlain has been good enough to regularly start for Arsenal. And I think someday maybe he will blossom into the player we think he can be. And I know you guys think he's done better than I do, but I still think... If, if you don't want to go with a Wobie in that position, I'd love to see Lucas get the shot. He is a proven goal scorer, granted not at this level per se, although in a top league, uh, he has the experience, the strength, I think the mentality to do it. But the guy that I think still gets the play, the position by default is Oxlade-Chamberlain. And that's, you know, that's just where I would disagree with the manager. But uh, the I think that's the think? case at the moment. I think that'll change in a heartbeat this season. I well, think we'll see. I suspect if we're going to have a real run at this and if Lucas is good, our three options on the wings will become not Iwobi, not Oxlade-Chamberlain. Certainly Iwobi will play a big role, but towards the, the grunt end of the season, it could well be Theo, Welbeck and Perez filling two of those three spots. So you heard it here uh, first. It's going to be Coughlin and Elneny in midfield at the weekend with Ox on the left and Ramsey on the right. Perfect. Um so, look, I, uh, I have absolutely no idea what to expect from us as we move into December in the busy period because I, I thought one of our strengths this season was that we were arguably the deepest, if not the best first 11 in the league, which I certainly don't think we are necessarily, maybe the best deep team in the league, most well-equipped to handle a busy period like the one we have coming up. I'm not totally sure that's the case at the moment, but we're going to find out. Um, I think we can leave it there. It's West Ham at the weekend. It should be interesting. I mean, defensively, I think there are shambles. I, I have never seen us effectively deal with Andy Carroll, so I'm kind of hoping he doesn't get to start that match. I, I believe he's been declared fit, so we'll see. Um, we'll obviously come back and discuss that match and the impending final match in the group stage of the Champions League after that. Uh, Paul is on Twitter at Posting in My Pants. Thanks, Paul. Pleasure. And Tim is on Twitter at Stilberto. Uh, you should certainly follow him there. Thanks, Tim. Pleasure as always. My name is Elliot Smith. You can block me on Twitter at Yankee Gunner. Please give us a five-star review and then write very nasty things, most specifically about me, if possible, in the comments section. Um, we will, I, you know, I know we have not done a lot of the taking your questions thing on Twitter. Part of that is just because of the nature of when we decide to record this, and it's sometimes sort of up in the air. Uh, and some of that is just because I am an incompetent host who should immediately be removed from the position. In any event, uh, we certainly thank you for listening, and we will talk to you after West Ham. Acast powers some of the world's best podcasts. Here's a show we recommend. In the latest episode of History This Week, we take a closer look at a failed insurrection at the U.S. Capitol building in 1861, when the nation was on the cusp of a civil war. Nearly 160 years later, what can we learn from this moment when democracy was challenged? 
And check out all our episodes this month as History This Week celebrates Black History Month. Last week, we covered the Greensboro sit-ins that sparked a media firestorm and inspired mass sit-ins across the country. Next week, we travel to Australia and witness Sydney students taking a freedom ride of their own for Aboriginal civil rights. After that, we'll be exploring the origins of jazz. For these stories and more, subscribe to History This Week wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST recommends.